Hi, podcast friends. It's so nice to be back with you all again. I hope everybody is well in the middle of all this crazy stuff that's been going on on the planet. I will admit I'm feeling kind of upset this morning. The unprecedented wildfires in the western part of my country are just so scary and apocalyptic. Um, such a wake-up call, I think, that climate change is for all of us. And I guess I believe fundamentally that it's a wake-up call to reintegrate the feminine, not just women into all of our institutions, uh, which is critical, but the feminine principles such as collaboration, serving the whole versus the myth of individualism, partnership versus domination, vulnerability, feeling, caring for one another. So I'm super excited to bring you this, uh, this episode, actually this series of three episodes, which will be uh, the entire story of human evolution through the eyes of a woman, Rabia Roberts. These recordings are actually classes that Rabia gave to a group of women in Boulder, Colorado in 2017. They're just super excellent and not to be missed. So I'm releasing them one each month for the next three months. Her Story A, Her Story Part B, and Her Story Part C. I think you'll find so much useful information. And Rabia is just an amazingly super intelligent spirit. Um, with so much sophistication and uh, lightness. So Robbie was on our show in 2017. And as you will see, her description of herself is pretty darn accurate. She's an activist who loves to be, uh, loves being a scholar. For the past 50 years, uh, she's been deeply engaged in, uh, this is her self-description, three great movements of our time, social justice, peace, and environmental action. Rabia has lived and worked in places as diverse as Iraq, Syria, Burma, Thailand, Jordan, Iran, Israel, Palestine, Brazil, and Afghanistan. Her unique experience has yielded a rich harvest of insights relevant to the challenges facing us. So her story was intended to be a series of seven classes or so, and after number three, Rabia has had constant medical challenges. Um, what got her into this was the need for what she sees as global feminine leadership and the fact that patriarchy won't die. This was to be her legacy for women and girls. In her words, her story is a great empowering story of who we women are and how it has been misunderstood, how women have the unique qualities and skills to bring our country together and our democracy forward. In fact, she says, I believe only a woman will be able to heal and lead us into the future. Only women have the needed capacities and skills to bring men and women people together. And her story gives the evolutionary reasons why this is so. This episode, the first one, covers the human story uh, from 13.6 billion years ago, basically the beginning, uh, to about 40,000 years ago. So there's so many incredible insights from this. I've learned so much from listening to it. Um, here are just a couple of what I'll call my favorite frames. The first is what she calls the enormous femininity of making something out of nothing. Uh, what cosmologist and scientist Brian Swim 
calls the great effulgence, what we often know of as the Big Bang, um, but that one of our first principles of our beginnings was differentiation, that everything differentiated, nothing was the same. It wasn't a pile of gas that evolved, it was differentiated beings, differentiated things. Um, so that's one of the main principles in us. And when we try to establish monocultures or mono races, we're working against the fundamental principles of Earth and ourselves. Monoculture ruined our food, Rabia says, and trying to have one race is ruining our civilization. A second frame is that the beginnings of mammals uh, was cloning two X's and it's female for a long time. The females of the species and insects to the apes are females reproducing themselves. Um, I think what's amazing about this is, of course, we all, for me in the West, I learned Adam and Eve. And of course, Adam and Eve was just upside down, completely backwards. And it's crazy how so many of our traditions attribute our beginnings to a God the Father, a male with no reproductive capacity at all. Another frame is simply the impact on our consciousness from standing up and seeing the horizon. Another frame is that uh, with the evolution of the XY chromosome, the male, it obviously brought um, a much needed biological diversity, but it also brought uh, violence and um, the testosterone that was needed in men to actually get their DNA into the female species. So Robbie goes on to talk about while women can be violent and competitive, the male half of our species creates most of the violence in both intimate and larger systems. And uh, she goes on to tell some interesting stories from her studies of whales and elephants who also deal with the same challenges of male violence, how the female of the species deal with that, which might be um, inspirational to some of our uh, female listeners. Uh, listening to this episode. I also liked her talking about the bonobos uh, that Rianne Eisler has also talked about are equally distant cousins to the chimpanzees. The bonobos are led by females. And if a male gets aggressive, they um, they go have sex. They are, according to the research that Rabia has done, the sexiest creatures uh, that this particular biologist who's referring to knew about, you know, males, females with males, females with females, males with males, young and old, there's a lot of sex going on and no aggression. Another frame is just how resilient we have been as a species, uh, how our ancestors have survived two major ice ages and so much more. And one of the key reasons for our resilience was the hunter-gatherer females who were by some um, researchers probably the most skilled human beings that ever existed on the planet with the ability to kill animals, to uh, hear a snake in the brush, to see a cyber-toothed uh, lion, to smell climate change days in advance, all while keeping her eye on her children. I mean, as Robbie says, so the working mom goes a long way back, like from always. And that finally the oldest grave that is known about with decorations and shells all over the parks and around it was a little girl. It wasn't a big chief. Um, it doesn't seem like males, chiefs, were any more decorated than the females that were found. 
So in this episode, she's pointing to a timeline. I've put that timeline on my website as well as the original YouTube video, if you would like to refer to that. So dear listeners, without further ado, I bring you Robbie Roberts. Where can we go back? How can we find out who we are, who we've been, that we haven't necessarily been told or we've forgotten? There was a huge amount of research in the 70s and 80s focused on females in the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. It was very important because they established our biological impulses and our capacities that... Uh, I don't see those books around. It's kind of like it came and went, a piece of knowledge about women's history. The good thing that's happened since I broke my neck <laughs> was going back and looking at some of the more recent research that's gone on in the last 10 years in neurosciences. That wasn't around when the feminist books were being written at the end of the 80s. We thought... One of the major confusions we had is we thought gender roles were quite flexible, almost completely flexible. I was one of those liberal mommies who gave my daughter overalls and trucks, uh, and she still wanted pink and purple and ruffles. And I had good friends of boys who no matter they gave them a doll to carry around. They were little. I mean, we really did this if you if you aren't at my age. Um, and the boys wanted to play with boys and shoot projectiles and uh, still draw their pictures with grays and browns and dark colors while women and girls were drawing theirs with different kind of colors. I mean, we have definitely found out in the last 10 years that gender roles, sex roles and gender roles, are not as malleable as we thought. They are not written in stone. But it's really hard for one mother or one family to make any difference at all when your daughter or son goes into a society that doesn't give the idea that uh, you have a choice as a child. That's probably the hardest thing. And this really affects women and boys who are gender different. So before I take a, a step into a very long history, very long historical book, uh, I'd like to make two caveats. One is this class, more than others, I will be relying on research, and research makes generalizations. I will try, I'm trying to have gotten notes on generalizations that are either global or which have been um, repeated in different studies. But here's what a generalization sounds like. Men are more aggressive and violent and competitive than women. So you can all think now of a competitive woman that you know, and that your husband isn't aggressive, blessed be. You are not one of those women who have been raped by people in your family, or maybe you are. So to make a generalization like that, Immediately, people go, you're just dissing men. I have a lot to say about men and women from physical, biological, statistical studies 
that are about generalizing. So to say men are more um, aggressive and violent and competitive is true. Women are also violent and competitive and aggressive, um, but a much smaller proportion. And you can go to any culture in this planet. Your studies have been done and say, who commits the most violent crime in your state or your country? No question. No question. There's no confusion about that. That's men. Who starts wars? Well, it's sometimes over Helen of Troy, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's mostly, it's mostly men. Who is more responsible for abuse in the family? Ah, it is mostly men, but my mother was the abusive one, the alcoholic abusive one. My father didn't protect me, but he was the nice guy. So how do you feel about that? Well, in fact, men are by far commit the in, uh, intimate violence as well as social violence. Okay, already this sounds like it's going to be against men. Well, it's not, but it's definitely going to be women forward. My husband looked at my notes and said, well, they're not going to like this. <laughs> because it's not only men who get upset when you say more corporate crime is committed by men. That if women were in corporate position, we would have less corporate crime. So you say something like that, and women get upset. At every talk I've ever given, it's women who say, there you are, doing the same thing they did to us. You're putting them down. We don't want that. We don't want to do that. Now, I think there are different reasons for that kind of response. One is because we want to be wary of doing to males what they've done to us for the last 6,000 years. We do want to be wary. On the other hand, we have been grown up from littlest girls to believe men know more. They are stronger. They should lead us. Their decisions are probably right. And if we got hit, we might have deserved it. Now, so for that, you know, that's an unconscious place. And if you hit too much on that man, who somehow in your unconscious has been your hero or your protector or whatever, you're not going to like it and you're going to think it's unfair. It's not unfair to tell the truth. It would be unfair if by the end of these 10 classes, it looked like I just buried men uh, and they don't belong in our world. Of course, it's a partnership. Of course, <laughs> men and women are of equal worth. I think what men forget, if you say something about women really have the skills that we need right now to move our culture in a transformative direction. I think what men forget is those skills include involving them. You know, the very skills we have say, come on, let's do this together. We have been, and we'll show today from the beginning, wired for relationships. And to put women forward to remind us of why what we have now has got to come forward isn't about excluding men, because one of the things will be 
involving them to come forward. Let's not be afraid of hearing what we know about uh, women's skills, capacities, ways that are biologically, neurologically, hormonally different than men. We can change. We are incredibly creative people. But as we've seen just in the last 40 years, as I've seen, we can't change as fast or as much as a whole lot of us hoped and wanted. So the second thing to, um, well, the second thing to be wary of is, is related to the first. We don't like hearing negative things about men, about men. We don't like hearing that maybe we are called to do more than we are. And that's really understandable. I don't know a woman who isn't overtired at any age. I worked hard in the feminist movement. I was tired for decades so that my daughter would have it different. She works for the state government. She is really exhausted. And she doesn't get any benefits. And she takes care of three kids. For a lot of us, we look at our daughters and say, my God, it, it looks like it got worse instead of better. That's a heartache. That's another reason I'm here. I don't want that for my granddaughter. I honestly believe if women step up, we can empower each other and the next generation to the degree that is needed. I hold on to that hope. It's a belief. I mean, we are amazing, and I have spent over 20-plus years in different countries, over a dozen, living and working in different countries, and everywhere. Women are awesome. I spent a lot of it in uh, Middle East and Central Asia with my husband. Even where they are most abused, they find ways to make it better for their daughters. So that's the kind of think about us. And I am going to say, whatever you do, think about how what you do can help other women. Think about it, you know? You don't, you don't know. If you make blankets, maybe you take blankets to the women's shelter. And think about how what you do can contribute to the larger community. But think of how what you do can serve more than yourself and your family. That's my pitch for activism. A lot, my husband says I'm not allowed to do much more. <laughs> he says you can't make women guilty, and I agree. I agree. And there's some balance that I don't know. There's some balance between doing what we're called to do and doing what is desperately needed, which sometimes I think is fasting on the capital steps. I'm not joking. You know, how do I balance that? And whenever I say, well, I think I should be doing more, because at one point I was a more visible activist, they say, oh, no, you have to do what gives you joy, what you're called to do. Okay, that sounds right. That's certainly the spiritual truth. And then something comes through my computer, and I think, man, i got to be protecting those people. I've got to be standing up to this. I've got to be out there. I cannot give us an answer. I don't know how to answer for myself. I think a lot of us are waiting for things to get worse. And we say, okay, when they get really bad for women and men, 
our grandkids when there are no more flowers left, um, when the economy does crash, then of course we'll do something. And in fact, um, we are wired to do something when it is right in front of us. Little kid runs in the street, you go in front of the car to pick up the kid, you risk your life. The forest is burning, the Amazon is going, and it's hard to know where to put yourself. So I hope that class by class, we get an answer for ourselves to that question. What can we do for each other to make it possible? You know, I gave a, I gave a talk while I was in Iraq working before the bombing. My husband and I were there with the peace group. And, and I, was, I came back from Iraq and I was wanting to raise money and I, I didn't think we would not bomb, but I wanted us to try as much as we could. And I stood up there and I said, if you can't be an activist, fund an activist. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I got money. <laughs> and that, wasn't, that wasn't what I meant at all. What I, what I really meant in my heart is what can you do to help change now? So where does our story, where does her story begin? I know that seems strange, but we begin at the beginning. Because the beginning, the energetic, energetic cells that emerged from that first moment are in each of us. They truly are in you. This began to set who you are, who you could be how you would behave, all the way, all the way then. And we all, you know, scientists always call this the Big Bang. There's a, a wonderful scientist, cosmologist, Brian Swim, who has the grace to call this, you know, the great effulgence and the graceful way in which it all started as it spread out, as opposed to the Big Bang, you know, which maybe if a woman had discovered that, she'd have said something else. So that's how crazy I am about what the course is like. How do we see everything through a woman's eyes? And then go home and say, okay, well, you know, we've overdone it there. But this, as this gracefully spread out from the very beginning, there were first principles. And, and the first one was everything differentiated. Nothing was the same. It wasn't a pile of gas that evolved. It was a differentiated beings, differentiated things. Dif I mean, so that's in us. That's one of the main principles in us. And when we try to establish monocultures or mono races, we're working against the fundamental principles of the earth and ourselves. Monoculture ruled our food. Still does. Trying to have one race is ruining our civilization. And so I just think that's a nice thing for women to hold on to, to know that, that in the very, very beginning of who we are and everything else is this great diversity, great complexity. The second Principle is what um, Father Thomas Berry called interiority. He was a cosmologist, a, he's still alive, passionist priest, physicist. And 
he said everything from the very beginning is a subject. Got an inside as well as an outside. And that interiority is what later will blossom as spirituality or consciousness or different things we humans call it. But it's in, I believe, it's in the universe. It's in us. The recognition that everything is interior as well as exterior. And the, the third is a communion or community. Everything that is a differentiated subject exists because it's in relationship to other things. It is in uh, the community of creativity and support. So that simply leads to the obvious conclusion that when we do things, we're doing them together. Um, when you look at a forest, all of the pieces require each other. And only 50 years ago, we thought we could take down all the trees and uh, everything else would last. We thought we could take the wolves out of the forest and know what a wolf was. It's as if you took yourself out of your family and, some, and you were thinking of this and someone said, well, you're a solo person. And you're thinking, wow, all those relationships I'm part of that keep me alive, keep me here, keep me conscious. So remembering that, I believe, is part of our awakening, our responsibility, our power. And when we see these things missing, what you're looking at isn't going to last. No way. If we had known this consciously and we looked at the early Green Revolution in the 50s and 60s, and saw the monoculture, we would have known it isn't going to last. It's what they want to do to, in Africa now, partnership between Monsanto and Bill Gates, mm -hmm. our favorite philanthropists, are going to monoculture Africa as opposed to creating small farms. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this plan will happen in your lifetime, and it will bring Africa down. Let's begin with that's the base of who you are. And it's certainly the base of the earth that arises over billions of years. And this is a self-organizing system. It is not like um, people were told in the scientific revolution. It's not run by a clock or a god or a man outside winds it up and then we watch it unfold it is it is continually making itself an enormous femininity of that in of making in this case out of nothing something and that something doesn't get made into something it arises out of nothing there's nothing there it makes time and space as it unfolds. This story was one that our earliest um, ancestors intuited. The time life on Earth, that's when we're coming out of the water. Maybe you've all seen Cosmos, and I don't have to do this. 
But the, the important part of this time, give or take several hundred million years, is that uh, reproduction begins. And the earliest millennia of reproduction are things making themselves out of what they are. It's cloning. And it's for mammals, it becomes two X's, and it's female. For a long time, the females of a species, from insects to, to the apes, we can't start it yet, are females reproducing themselves. Now, at some point in evolution, this lovely thing begins to change. One of these simply begins to devolve. This is one-third the size of that. It is talked about in biological circumstances. Something of a birth defect began to occur. And we don't know what will happen in another half million years. I'm sure no one, we don't want males to disappear. So it's, it's not what I'm saying. Don't take that home. I'm saying that Adam and Eve had it upside down. Completely had it backwards. This holds about a thousand pieces of genetic information. This holds 50. This is one third the size of that. So why did that hang around so long? Because it creates a lot more diversity. You put a male and a female together and you roll out a lot of differentiation, a lot of diversity. And it's very healthy, good for all the species. Um, but this is how things seem to be going on, certainly in all mammals at this moment. Uh, and the reason I mention it at all is because I did grow up with Adam and Eve. I mean, I grew up with that story that Adam was here first. Adam was lonely, and he told God the Father he was lonely. And so God the Father, a male, no, no reproductive capacity at all. The father um, took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. When I later got to college and studied the Greeks, Athena comes out of the forehead of Zeus. So we're going to look a lot at uh, Christianity and the Hebrews and the Greeks about how influential they were in the turnaround from recognizing the... Uh, reproductive success and importance of females to saying in some of the Greek myths, uh, a mother has nothing to do with the birth of her son. That's why he could kill her. It's father who makes the child. And that came down quite a way. The dinosaurs come up and something that's cool to know is the mammals are already in existence. I didn't know that at the time either. I thought we came after that, but actually we were about 300,000 millennium. Um, and the dinosaurs go away, and there's what I think of as the great flowering. This is the birds and the bees, the mammals, the first primates. So this is us. This is your long time ago, grand, 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 grand ancestor. And the noticeable thing in this is how incredibly flexible mammals are that we've existed from 300,000 
million years through ice ages and several um, extinctions, we kept going. This is a guess. You see different numbers here. This is getting really close to your ancestors now. These are the ones who come down out of the trees. A lot changes during this time. There's pretty fast evolution begins to go on because you got to know a whole lot more to navigate the ground. You have to know other things. So once we've been down there for a while, and scientists just discovered that we had strong soldiers, shoulders, so they say we went back and forth for a long time, especially females, um, because we were vulnerable down here. So there, this is roughly Lucy. Remember Lucy? Okay, this is Lucy. That's your relative. Unless you belong to another church, that a religion that doesn't see it this way, um, then I apologize. This is the way, this is the scientific way. I'm a daughter of the Enlightenment. I'm, I'm kind of caught in this way. This is, for someone like me, a real exciting time. And a lot changes for females in this period. What changes? We come down out of the trees. We're now on the African plains most of the time. Um, by this time, there are about six different kind of humans. We're Homo sapiens. There are a lot of homos, a lot of uh, humans before us. Uh, Homo erectus, Homo promanian, uh, Neanderthal. There were there were six other relatives who, for a variety of reasons either got bred out by us or didn't survive. But to say they didn't survive didn't mean they didn't make it for like 400,000 years. So they survived, all of them so far, better than we have at this point of Homo sapiens. Um, so what goes on here? Well, you're walking around now and you're out of the trees and your pelvis tilts so you can stand up. Babies are needing to learn a whole lot more than they did back here. How to make already stone tools, how to recognize something coming out of the forest that you, you know that you need to know because you're not in the tree for safety anymore. Our brain gets bigger slowly. And as the brain gets bigger, the head gets bigger. Because we are standing up, our vagina, our passageway gets smaller. So for maybe a million years, probably less than that, there is a great contest about female survival. The Cro-Magnons, they think, didn't survive because they didn't know how to solve this problem. Cro-Magnon head is even bigger than ours. The, the test between getting a big-headed, knowledge-filled infant out and our increasingly uh, smaller vagina meant that for a fairly long period of time, females had died at a, a more than average rate. <coughs> but evolution came to a good compromise eventually. We didn't give up walking upright. That was simply too important to our lives walking upright. I can't find very many biology books that talk about it other than 
its reproductive implications, but imagine standing upright. I mean, you have a horizon. What does that begin to do to our consciousness? I don't know. Uh, speculate. <laughs> it, I think it does it to males and females. I mean, we, we are now upright beings. So the way to get our baby out is to make the rest of the body premature. So when a baby comes out, it's, it has a smaller head than it did at the beginning. Head's gotten a little smaller to get it out. But the body's considerably smaller. The body comes out premature. It can't even hold on a way a primate can. The pre-human female is the first mammal that we know of that can't take care of herself at birth. Part of what she has to do is get the rest in the brain that wasn't able to grow inside of her. So there's two plus years worth of uh, neural awakening that's done on the part of the mother. That's so the brain can grow then, like language, or a variety of other things. So it means that the, the mother has a harder job, and a longer job than she had before. But here she, she was hunting in the trees with her brother or uh, whoever she screwed last or, or whatever. Um, she was part of a tribe, and as she grew old, she was um, maybe a, an influential part of the tribe. But it begins to break down here. But what does that do for our species? What do females do? This is cool. They talk to each other. Usually the story is told <laughs> that at this point, women need males for the first time. And we will eventually, but it's not the first thing we do. First thing we do is begin to communicate with the other females in our kin group, our tribe, and some women feel our grand, our mothers, that grandmothers in fact continue to live because they play a really important role in helping the mother and daughters survive. There's a nice book out on that. Um, but it's, whatever it was, what we needed was <coughs> procreation. Our species developed stronger communication, learned effective bonds. Compassion is a biological capacity that arises between the mother-child need for longer care and relationship. So love and compassion... These, these are in our biology. They're in our hormones, actually. With oxytocin, if I pronounce that right, is a socializing hormone, and women have more at birth. And it gets stimulated the more people are in groups and talk to each other. But the main thing here is that females now are together with children. And without that need, uh, we wouldn't be who we are. There's a whole list of things that happen to our species so that females can be longtime mothers of their offspring. Again, it's really not what Adam and Eve told us. Other things have changed already in this that I didn't talk much about. Uh, this XY 
when um, an infant is born with an XY uh, instead of two Xs, he also releases other hormones. That's the trigger for the release of androgen and testosterone and probably other ones that I can't think of. But it's, it's what triggers the female into a male. But the basic body type is female all the way through, continues to be. The human um, is, a, is basically female that changes with uh, hormonal changes and other kind of changes that we'll see. But as part of how these two get together, and uh, that's obviously important, how, how does this male um, get his reproductive heredity into a female? Well, he develops a lot of androgen and testosterone, I said, which make you aggressive. That's what they do. If you, if there's a female, if there's a girl born who doesn't feel like a girl, just not with her, they have experiments, I think they've done good experiments with putting male hormones into her at different ages, and she develops often quite happily into a male. So we know those hormones make the difference. So now all species have something, all big species have something of a problem. How to get the benefit of the male without all the trouble he causes? <laughs> um, really, he causes trouble. He studies chimpanzees and it's the males who cause trouble. They're the ones who go and fight others who come in. But the female in estrus wants the male, needs the male. Um, kind of calling the male. And then, for the most part, she'd like him to go away. <laughs> and uh, it's great. Oh, oh Wilson, uh, who, who studies insects, shows how that's true for a lot of insects as well. Many of them eat the, <laughs> eat the male who's just impregnated them. But, so, okay, so don't, don't take that home either. Take, <laughs> take home that from the beginning, large females with, um, with large brains, because the ones I know the best are the elephant and the whale, um, have to deal with this sociological problem. And the way many species do is, is the elephant is a wonderful example. An elephant herd or tribe is uh, females and children. And when the children become, the male children become a certain age, they are kind of scooted out. When the tribes were healthy, there were healthy male groups for them to go to. Now the male groups, the males have the biggest tusks. So male groups have been weakened and often young males get taken into reserves that are trying to protect them and they are by when they become adolescents they're they're quite problematic they they try to get out they try to kill their i mean they haven't had imagine a teenage boy who never saw a grown-up male so it's a bad situation but it, originally the females the elephants had it worked out really well 
The males were not unhappy. There were enough water holes for the most part. When a female went into estrus, it's really cool. Um, she gets glasses and flap her ears and stomp around. And so do some of her sisters and aunts and daughters. And her, her smell, I guess, um, awakens males from long distances who come kind of trotting over. And this is cool. Gets welcomed in, you know, gets checked out first. The sister, really, the sisters and daughters back up, go out of way, but not out of sight, go out of the way. The couple does their thing. And in a short period of time, he leaves again. And the other females, they all come together and they celebrate. I mean, it looks like it. They do this great dance and there's tears running down their eyes. We don't know what causing them. And there's a whole... It's a whole good thing. So that's what, that's how our elephants handle it. Whales do something quite similar. Um, female whales are a, a pod along with children and male whales come from some distance. And if the female whale, and part of this is because it takes a long time to raise an elephant and to carry one. I mean, there's a big investment on the part of whales and elephants and their offspring. They're not going to risk having some aggressive male get in the way. They can't afford to. So the female whales, if a male whale comes and she doesn't feel ready yet, puts him away. If he's still eager, he goes to his pod and he gets two more male whales. Then comes over and they flip her over, hold her down, and he impregnates her. So, you know, there we are. It's a, it's a reproductive world. Well, primates, primates have done it differently um, in different ways. There's no one way that they do it. The chimpanzees are incredibly violent. They are closest relatives. They're very warlike. They're, they fight each other. They'll attack someone's baby. Uh, they'll fight another tribe. They're, they're in, Incredibly aggressive. And when I was growing up, I was always told that this was our ancestors. I got older, and I think Rian Eisler was the first one who woke me up to the fact that there had been a big split historically, millions, millions, millions of years ago. And on the other side of this chasm, which couldn't be broached, are the bonobos. Yeah. Now, the bonobos came down the same line. They are as much of an ancestor to us we're also two genetic uh, steps away from them, like we are from the chimpanzees. They do it entirely different. The bonobos are led by females. Um, if a male gets aggressive, they go have sex. They, they are, according to my book, the sexiest creatures um, that this particular <laughs> biologist knew. When, you know, they, with everybody. You know, females with males, females with females, males with males, young and old. There's a lot of sex going on and no aggression. The males are just not as aggressive. And if one is, he's invited to leave the whole pack and go start his own if he wants. And they're big, they're big apes. 
So here, those earliest humans begin, remember we had Lucy here, begin to migrate out of Africa. Now, we're, we're different now. We're standing up. We're having our babies prematurely. We talk. What they call it is collaborative birthing. We are an animal that has collaborative birthing. Our babies exist, I mean survive, because of a collaborative investment in them. So they begin migrating up between 150 and 70,000. We find some um, bones, stone tools. Uh, actually, it wasn't the Stone Age, it was the Wood Age, but the wood decayed. I mean, basically, what we used was a lot of wood. Um, but these people seem to have traveled everywhere. They survived two major ice ages. They appear in China. They're around 800,000. They're not homo sapiens. I don't remember what they are, but they're everywhere. Some of them die off. Some of them are still there. When our people begin to go up. Up until November, the information was there were several, there was a, Several migrations. One that went early, this is in the book Species, one that went early and then fought with them and got defeated. The latest in November Science Magazine is there was one wave between 40 and 70. And it's not clear whether they fought these others to death or they intermarried because um, our, our ancestors all show some cells from um, Neanderthals. So probably, depending on where you're from, if you're from the Basque or if you're from um, above the Himalayas, you're likely to have some Neanderthal genetics still there. So by this time, we are talking quite a lot. They, they look just like you. And in fact, a, a, a whole line is quite blonde coming out there, white-skinned and, and blonde from what can be told. At least I saw pictures in a book that said they were our ancestors from that time. But they are, you wouldn't, if they were dressed up uh, for Boulder, you wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> True. Boulder. But this, for all this time, we're getting along. I guess that's the important point to make. These are fairly equal family tribe groups of a variance, varying size. Some is hypothesized as large as 150, most of them smaller, kin groups of 15 to 30, let's say. Um, no evidence of female abuse. Males are probably bigger. They, well, they do more of the big hunting for sure. That's their main gift. Women do, at that time, they say now that females are responsible for most of the caloric intake of our, uh, our ancestors. That's why we made it. It was because of their foraging. Uh, they're getting honey. They're getting berries. They're getting small animals. The importance, however, of males going out for bigger animals on longer hunts is a big dose of protein. Those doses of protein enabled our brain to develop more and all the things that 
that protein will do. So it was a really interactive, um, very good little setup there. From what we can tell from foraging and hunting tribes that still exist, that's where the last information is. Now, those aren't reliable. Most of the uh, hunting and foraging groups that Americans got to the study in the 1920s and 30s had already been contacted. I mean, you know, so we don't really know. We know that the oldest grave with decorations, with shells all over the corpse and around it, was a little girl. It wasn't a big chief. It doesn't seem like males, chiefs were any more decorated than the females we found. And that differs some by uh, where in the world we're talking about. One of the first, one of the first um, biggest settlements is Indonesia, much more than um, Old Europe. And uh, Australia, someone invented boats very early on. These people were thought of as savages when I was a kid, if they were thought of as all. And what they didn't have is much stuff. I mean, if you think about what your average accumulation is, what you need for sex, what you need to eat, uh, what you need to have a good time with your children, right? All that. And you don't notice it, so you have to move house. I have millions of things, certainly hundreds of thousands of things. Well, these people didn't have anything they couldn't carry. Sometimes from day to day they broke camp. Sometimes from week to week, sometimes month to month. But they didn't have that. They weren't even like the Native Americans we encountered here that had big uh, tents they, they pulled. The horse that they encountered wasn't tamed yet, though it had already been tamed in other parts of the planet. So <laughs> I just read the greatest quote um, this morning, the hunter-gatherer female was probably the most skilled human being that's ever existed on the planet. She knew how to make a knife that was so thin it can't possibly have been used. It must have been for decorative reasons. She knew how to kill animals. She heard a snake in the brush. She saw a saber-toothed lion. She could smell the climate change days in advance. And particularly her, because she's doing all this while keeping her eye on her children. I mean, so the working mom goes a long way back. <laughs> um, like from always. The two theories are that um, all of these early tribes were monogamous, male and female, and then other kin and relatives. Um, other scientists insist, no, these were more likely to be female-led groups, and she has sex with a number of the males in the tribe, and there was a lot of sexual freedom among adolescents, and actually the battle is kind of a religious one. There are people who are, you know, they're probably both, right? I mean, it's a big planet. We were almost all over it. We were in the ice everywhere. I imagine we worked out lots of ways to reproduce, raise adolescents, get along. 
But there are people who insist that monogamy goes all the way back. Um, to Adam and Eve. Yeah, to Adam and Eve. But uh, they're latecomers. They come, Adam and Eve come way after when men have decided to take over. Um, I don't know, this is how you live. And to have survived, we needed females. I guess that's the big point. And uh, we have to take care of our young. And we still have to work it out. You still have to pay extra for daycare than you should. I mean, our society isn't interested in taking care of the young. If we can't manage, we're failing. I mean, consciousness raising group in the 60s and 70s, I remember holding my first one. The discovery was the problems I was having, every, all the women in the circle were having. How to get dinner on the table, how to, I mean, that's what raised our consciousness was that the bad job we thought we were doing, I was a single mom, but the bad job we thought we were doing was in fact fairly universal. And that's what gave rise to that second wave of the feminist movement, the women's movement. Thanks for listening, everybody. Amazing material, I think. So many great life-transforming insights in this episode. The next episode, Rabia describes as uh, one of her favorite classes, what she calls one of the most exciting periods in human history and one of the most important in women's history, the Neolithic. As she says, I know that sounds like it's ancient, but once you start studying things like neuroscience and how long it takes the brain to develop, you begin to understand that pathways are laid down a long time ago that still have a great influence on us. So, listeners, if you want to be uh, sure to be one of the first to know when we drop the next in the series, please subscribe on our website at susancoleman.global. It's free, of course. You can sign up there for both the podcast list and uh, Women Negotiation and Power for all of our latest news and information. Until then, we greatly appreciate you being part of our community. Please stay well, stay safe, and keep being the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm.